what I want to present to you this morning is uh, some of the, the thinking that I've done about why we interpret the Word of God or why we have different kinds of doctrines and different ideas. Amen. Uh, one of our problems, if you don't mind me saying so here, even though we have some good seminaries out there, one of the problems is that they grow so big that they have to be self-perpetuating and whether students are called or not, whether they are the right caliber or not, our seminaries spit them out into the churches on the basis of their credentials, which of course are not credentials found anywhere in scripture. All right. Uh, the rules of affinity, what on earth are these about? When we talk to an unsaved person about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've got a Bible in our hands, we want to tell them certain things about what God says. We want to tell them about God. We want to tell them about Jesus Christ. We want to tell them why Jesus Christ came. We want to tell them, therefore, something about themselves, as sinners, as creatures. We want to tell them the good news that Jesus died for their sins on the cross and that he rose again victoriously from the grave and he's coming again to judge the world and to rule. We want to tell them as accurately as possible but as clearly as possible what the Bible says and how that pertains to them in their unsaved fallen state. So what we do is that we get the Bible in our hands and if we have opportunity, we show them from the scriptures what the scriptures teach. Now when we're doing that, we're very careful to make sure that we point them to passages which, if you can follow my wording here, say what they teach. Do you understand what I'm saying? They say what they teach. In other words, if, for example, we were wanting to tell them that Christ died on the cross and the, the clearest passage we have was in the book of Exodus and the, uh, the painting of the blood on the lintels, you know, one, one here, one there and one up here. And we said, well, there's the sign of the cross there, you see. So that signifies this and that means this. Can you see that there would be a distance between what the Bible says and what our interpretation of its significance was and what we want them to gather? And we, I think, would all agree that it would be forgivable for them to, uh, to look at us and look at the book and say, well, I can't follow that. I'm, I'm not going to stake my life, my soul. I'm going to change my life on the basis of these rather tenuous relationships and interpretations that you're bringing out of that. After all, it doesn't say what you say it says. We do that with unsafe people. We also do it when we remonstrate with the cults. So somebody bangs on our door and they want to teach us that the kingdom is a coming and uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were part of it and so on, isn't this an awful world but things are going to get better and we get introduced to Jehovah's Witnesses and get handed Jehovah's Witness literature and so on 
And in our responses to them, if we know the word of God, we want to, in our uh, earnestness and our, our care for them, we want to show them, look, you've got it wrong here. You can't do anything to save your soul. But you can know Jesus now. You can know that you have forgiveness of sins and eternal life now. It's not about what the watchtower say. God's given us his revelation. You're being misled. You're being mis, you know, misguided. You're being taken away from the truth. And this is why. This is how. And we might first of all start off with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 about the fact that salvation is a gift and it can't be worked for. It has to be accepted by faith. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And uh, that leads, of course, to maybe the dispute between their view of God as Unitarian and our view of God, the biblical view of God, as Trinitarian. And some of the other things as well that, that are in dispute there. But in our interactions with them, what we want to do is that we want to show them what the Bible says. Again, if we were to point them to an obscure scripture in defense of our position, they could be forgiven to be saying, well, I don't see any relationship between what that's saying and what you're saying. And by the way, we do that with them. You know, if they want to prove that they are Jehovah's Witnesses based on something in Isaiah 44 or whatever, you know, we say, well, that's not written to the Watchtower and Tract Society, that's written to Old Testament Israel. If they want to prove that they're the 144,000 in Revelation 7 and 14, or at least some of them are, we say, no, that's not the Jehovah's Witnesses that started in, what, 1841 or whenever they started. That has to do with sealed Israelites, according to what it says. All of these interactions are based on what the Bible says. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could conduct our theological business in that way, in every aspect of our beliefs and our proclamation of those beliefs? I realise, by the way, that that is not always possible, but I do think that it is possible for the great majority of the things that we ought to teach and we ought to believe. This is where these things get a little bit uncomfortable for certain people. And as, uh, as I go on here describing this piece of work, but there are certain Christian brothers and sisters who, when we go through these, would feel very uncomfortable between the, the lack of affinity between what the Bible says and their cherished doctrines and therefore would be tempted to discard what I've got to say here. What I'm doing here with these rules of affinity is that I am trying to not replace any system of hermeneutics, not trying to usurp a system of theology. What I'm trying to do is simply to measure the degree of affinity between what the Bible says and what we say when we're pointing to the Bible. Once we've got that, we can measure 
the degree, or at least have an idea of the degree of inference, rational inference, that we import into each doctrine that we believe. And, of course, when we've set out all of our individual doctrines and we've, we've looked at the whole system, we can see how much of our theological system is based on human inference as opposed to what the Bible says. What I want to do is I want to measure the degree to which Scripture, and I'm just going to call it the text, agrees with our beliefs. That is our theological or doctrinal ideas. Or to put it another way, I'll change the colour, between the Bible, what God says, and between any theological proposition that we claim to be biblical. We all do this, don't we? We all say, well, it's biblical. The Bible says. Uh, I was given a a presentation last week at a church about Calvinism and Arminianism. And I said, well, if you ask a Calvinist or an Arminian or a, a Reformed Covenant theologian or a dispensationalist, say, to define their system, many of them will define their system by saying it's what the Bible teaches. And of course, that's not a definition, is it? Because they're all saying it's what the Bible teaches. They might as well all say it's number 27. They're not giving you actually any information content at all. They're just giving you a piece of autobiography. It's what I believe the Bible teaches, is what they really mean by that. But it's not a definition. It's not anything that, that actually you can, you can take and you can relate to where you're at. What we need to do is that we need to be open in our understandings of, of our beliefs to where others might disagree with us and why they might disagree with us and where we might be wrong, where there is room for brotherly, sisterly disagreement and where we must stand strong. We need to try to understand how much of ourselves and our own predispositions are involved in our favoured system that we've embraced. Whether that be a system, say, of covenant theology or of dispensationalism or something in between or whatever. I've tried to to think through this. This all seems fairly straightforward, but it's taken me years to come up with this stuff, probably because I'm just dim. But this material, I think, helps us to do that. We're trying to measure, therefore, the propositional distance, as I call it, between what the Bible says, what God says, and what we say in our theologies and in our statements of faith. Let's go to an example here. The doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, Romans 5.1, if somebody can turn to that and just read that for me, nice and loud. The proposition, P, is that a person is justified by faith. So that's what we're bringing. That's the, that's the important doctrine that we're bringing with us. And now what we want to do is we want to test the distance between what we say, our proposition, and what the, the Bible says. So can somebody read that for me? Therefore, having been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So what we have here is that we have what I call a direct relation between our doctrine and between our proposition. Do you see that? Other examples are God created the world. There's only one God. Christ died for our sins. Christ rose again for our justification. We're all sinners. Now, actually, and interestingly, though perhaps not surprisingly, nearly all of the major fundamentals that we hold dear are of that uh, degree. In other words, there is a very strong direct correspondence between the doctrine that we espouse and what the Bible actually says. We can go straight to it, we can point to it. We believe that because that's what the Bible says. But we can't do that with every doctrine. We can't do that, for example, with the doctrine of the Trinity, can we? Even if we believe that 1 John 5, 7 belongs there, and I'm not going to argue that one way or another, okay? 1 John 5, 7 actually doesn't teach the doctrine of the Trinity. You still have to do quite a bit of legwork to get the doctrine of the Trinity from that text, okay? There are three that bear witness in heaven, okay? So, because that one has a question mark on it, it wouldn't be a good one to go to anyway. But the doctrine of the Trinity is, is a cherished doctrine. I mean, it is foundational to what we believe. But we cannot go to any text of Scripture that says that God is one, yet he is three, and these three are co-essential, co-eternal, uh, interpenetrate each other, and that they are God in three. Okay, we can't do that. What we can do is that we can go to texts which tell us that God is one. For example, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one Lord. And there's no other, you see. And we can also go to texts which tell us that the Father is God, that the Son is God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. Less with the Holy Spirit, but you can do it in, in Acts 5, for example. So, from the collusion of those texts, that God is one, that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, and then looking at the way that that plays out, particularly in the New Testament, for example, in the upper room, or in Romans 8, or somewhere like that, we can certainly see the, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. In other words we can make not a direct relation for the Trinity, let's use another comma here, but what we can do is that we can make a strong inference for our proposition, with emphasis on the word strong. It is strong because of the collusion of direct texts which bring about an inevitable doctrinal conclusion. Now, what I've tried to do is that I've tried to categorize the different doctrines that we espouse or that other people espouse 
And I've also tried to do that with people that disagree with me. In other words, people that are wrong. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've tried to try and understand, just for my own sanity, why they're thinking the way they're thinking, what's going on, and, and what am I doing, and why do I believe what, I'm, what I believe. So, I've come up with five categories of this kind of relationship, from C1, category 1, down to C5. Now, if you will turn your page over, I'm just going to, uh, to read from that heading, the usurpation of inferred doctrines over directly stated doctrines, okay? And then we're going to, these uh, rules. So, I'm going to read for a second here. One interesting and noteworthy feature of doctrines poorly supported when seen under the rules of affinity is that they quite often have a powerful effect upon those who have expended mental energy formulating them. I think we can all see why that might be the case. After all, if we have derived a doctrine by our own logical powers and we see, oh yeah, that links with that and that goes with that and that looks pretty good, yeah, we actually become quite satisfied with our work. And it's our work. You see? That be can become quite an important plank of our beliefs. Whether it's got any direct relation to what the Bible says or not. Okay, moving on. It is not unusual to discover major planks of certain theological schools having only threadbare support from the passages that they use, or whence they are supposed to be inferred. In such cases, it is often seen that rather than the doctrine being formulated from the ground up using the Bible, this is what we've done here, it has instead been inferred from another doctrine, and then the search has been made to find the requisite biblical text to substantiate it. More often than not, it is these formulations which fare badly when tested against these rules. Okay, now let me uh, go through these different categories, what I call a category formulations. You know, it took me just as much hard work coming up with a decent name for this, rules of affinity, which I kind of like, than actually formulating them in the first place. I kept referring to them as a grid of category formulations, which is a very clumsy way of, of describing it. But I was reading like a mystery or something, and this word affinity was there. And I thought, oh, that's a good word. <laughs> and so anyway, that's how I came about it. If you can look under rules of affinity there, you can see a C1. A C1 is what I have just described as far as the justification belief is concerned, or creation, or I would say the deity of Christ, and uh, many other doctrines. I define a C1 as a doctrinal proposition based on a straightforward quotation of Scripture. I've just demonstrated that to you. Special creation, justification by faith, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the inspiration of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16. I know there's a little bit of work to do with the exegesis on the word all there. You know, is it all or is it every? That's where your, your hermeneutics and your exegesis aren't thrown out by these things. The pervasiveness of sin among the human race, the one salvation through Jesus, the bodily resurrection, the return of Jesus physically, uh, heaven and hell. 
fundamental doctrines, yes? Yes. These are C1 propositions or formulations. So if you've got a C1 formulation, you're in a position where you can point to the text of Scripture and you can say, this is what I believe because that's what it says. There's still theological work to do. There's exegetical work to make sure you've got the context right because after all, Jehovah's Witness will go to James 2.14 and so on to say that we are saved by faith and works, yes? And that's pretty strong, yes? Unless we, we do our, our contextual work. A Mormon will go to 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about a baptism for the dead. So this doesn't replace you know, the other work that we're doing, but it, what it does do is that it tells us how strong the uh, propositional relationship is between what we're saying and what the scripture is saying. Okay. A C2 proposition, that's the, the Trinity is a good example of that, is a proposition based on a strong inference from the witness of several C1 passages combined. You follow me? I've just demonstrated that with the doctrine of the Trinity. Thus producing an inevitable doctrinal conclusion. The Trinity, and I would also add here, the future kingdom of God on earth, the doctrine of inerrancy. There's no text of scripture that says all of the Bible is inerrant. But from the texts that speak about the inspiration of Scripture or the Holy Spirit's bearing along of those that wrote Scripture from Jesus talking about the Scripture cannot be broken and other texts like that, which are very clear texts, we derive a strong inference for the doctrine of inerrancy. Believers only baptism, I would put that there. You might want to put, them, put it as C1, but I, I stick it at C2. Men only eldership, I stick that there too. Now, I say here that C1 and C2 formulations, while they may be nuanced and improved, if they are through exegesis and the other work that we've done, they have that validity. We've not kind of ripped something out of the context. They are non-negotiable. They are non-negotiable. If we've done our exegesis We've satisfied that we've got the context, that we are not reading other doctrines into it, but we're just, at the moment, doing the initial work of finding out what it's saying. We see either direct relations or strong inferences, a collusion of direct relations to bring about a doctrine. Then that doctrine, the proposition that we put in our statements of faith, is non-negotiable. It could be improved. That's what systematic theology is for. We could derive applications from it in our preaching, for example, in our counselling. But as far as a a rock-steady doctrine, it is non-negotiable. It's indubitable. I believe, now this is where some of you might help me, you might uh, see some holes in the the system. I believe that all of the absolutely essential doctrines of the Christian faith are either C1s or C2s. All of them. I would also say 
and this is where it might get uncomfortable, that there are certain doctrines which some Christians and denominations would rather not be C1s and C2s that are C1s and C2s, such as the covenants that God made with Israel, such as not only are you justified by faith, but you are also you are regenerated by faith, or at least on the basis of faith. C1 and C2 would be the items that are so fundamental that we would divide Thank you for asking the question. I do not believe that the rules of affinity ought to be used in that way. I think that they can be used to show where somebody's off. But because there are things like the future kingdom, and we'll go to Jeremiah 34 later as an example of this, or the future temple, or something like that, or the... the, uh, literal antichrist, something like that, as an individual. Because there are things like that which either do not affect the doctrines of salvation, the gospel by which a person is saved, nor do they directly impugn the character of God. I think they do indirectly, because any deviation from what God says must, of course, be a question mark against the clarity of what God is saying but they don't directly uh, impugn God, then we don't need to divide over them. We might need to set up a different church with a different statement of faith. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that includes... Well, that kind of that in- <laughs> but no, we can be brothers. Yeah. And we can understand why we disagree, because I might say, I don't like my Reformed brother teaching that the church is the new Israel because there's a great deal of propositional distance between what the Bible's saying and what you're saying. Do you see that? And I can't go there. I want to narrow that distance and therefore, yeah, I'm not going to go there. It'd be the same thing on, say, limited atonement or definite atonement, whatever you want to call it. So these are C1 and C2 formulations. By the way, because of the fact that some C1 and C2s will include doctrines that not every Christian would agree upon because of the amount of inference that they admit into their systems, at least we can understand why uh, denominations are, in a sense, necessary. We can understand denominationalism, if you like, in that way denominationalism because of a disagreement of the amount of inference involved in a statement of faith, I think is, is okay. It's understandable. Denominations over personality splits or whatever cannot at all be blessed by this system. Before I move on, let's take some questions or some observations so far. Anybody want to ask something on this? Yes, brother. Well, in C2, you're mentioning men only eldership. Yes. Is that the way that it should be? Yes. In the Bible? Yes. But some people, Ben Witherington, for example, on his recent blog, has written two articles supporting women leadership. Yes. Okay, so some people are going to disagree with you. But what we're doing here is to show, look, 
you are supporting your arguments for women eldership by a great deal of inference whereas I'm supporting mine by a direct relation between what the text is saying in its context and what I'm saying in my statement of faith anything else? Right, a C3. A C3 is a doctrinal proposition based upon a plausible inference from the shared witness of the cumulative direction, sorry about this wording, of C1 and C2 texts of Scripture. Now, in this category, I put the pre-tribulational rapture, for example. I would also put the post-tribulational rapture in this category. Baptism by immersion or baptism by effusion. I would argue that that might be stuck in there. Effusion, standing in the water and having it poured over you. Single or plural elders. The seminal headship of Adam. That we, not only are our physical characteristics, our bodies derive from Adam but our spiritual characteristics are derived from Adam Uh, opposed to that is what's called confusingly creationism which is uh, believed by many modern reformed scholars that God creates an individual soul in each person as they are born or, or just before they are born or whenever they're not really sure when that's done single or plural elders I think that a person can go to the text of scripture and uh, argue for both. A person might go to the plural use of presbyteros, for example, and say, well, you know, where it's used, it's always plural. Okay, another person might go to Third John, or they might go to certain texts, like the house that is in their church, Archippus and so on, and say, well, it seems to me that there is a one elder there. It's not C1. I say it's not C2. It's not inevitable. But at least you can see that there's a connection that they're making with the scriptures. Okay? That's what I'm saying. There's a single. Yeah, Yeah, you see, what we're saying is with a C3, these doctrines are, let me use a big word, defeasible. In other words, defeasible belief is one that can be overthrown if if other evidence comes in to disconfirm the information that you have. So that you you hold it and you might hold it as an important part of what you do, but you have to at least understand that there are other people that disagree with you because they are not persuaded that the text of scripture inevitably leads to that conclusion. And you can at least see, like, maybe there are some post-tribulationists here. I'm a pre-tribber, okay? But if there are some post-tribulationists here, I recognize that there are some texts that you can use, then point to, that I've got to deal with. And these texts do seem to support a post-tribulational rapture. I would just say that there are stronger texts... And also that the arguments for pre-tribulationalism and the problems with what I believe the problems of pre-tribulationism are less than the problems that I see with post-tribulationism. Okay? So, 
what we have therefore in a C3 is an inference to the best explanation, as the scientists like to say. But an inference to the best explanation, one second, thank you. An inference to the best explanation is defeasible. In other words, it can be uh, overturned if more evidence comes in. You okay with that? What I'm trying to do is that there are some beliefs that we hold that we can't go C1 and C2 with. Okay? And I would say that the pre-tribulational rapture is one of them. Uh, others that I've got down here, as you see, single or plural elders, seminal headships, and you might be able to think of some others. Some of these you might want to argue are C2s. That's fine. But I hope that you understand that once you actually try to do the work, say you're arguing with a post-tribulationist, actually they're pointing to scriptures too. They're not doing an awful lot of inference. You know, they can go to Second Thessalonians 1, for example, and stand on that pretty strongly. That's why I say there is room for a C3 there. Okay, uh, brother, what you say? Now, when you said you have the problem passages, like you believe in the pre-trib, but there are passages you can go through post-trib. Yeah. Like you would, you don't believe that those passages do teach post-trib, though. No, I don't. Is but I can see how someone might. But, but they're wrong. <laughs> I believe they're wrong, yeah. But, but the problem is, you see, uh, the way that God has, has written the Bible, and I think he's done this deliberately, at least you can understand how somebody can arrive at a position different than yours. What I'm going to do is, uh, I'm, when I get to C4s and C5s, one of the things that comes out of this that I started to see was where there is a reliance and an over-reliance on human inference, on, on rationalization, if you like. It is usually the doctrine that is believed clashes with C1s and C2s. We'll look at that a little later. Yes, that's very good. Um, again, a person may go to, you're all, I hope, familiar with the, the uh, warning passages of Hebrews. Mm -hmm. And if you are familiar with the argument of the writer to the book of Hebrews, you will know, those of you that know a bit of Greek, you will know that this writer is certainly studied in Greek rhetoric. In other words, he knows how to say what he means. He's not a clumsy writer. He very carefully crafts his arguments, which is why you know, some people, some commentators believe that Hebrews is a sermon or a group of sermons because of its, its logical argumentation. That being the case, what do we do when we start to run up against for example, Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10, and the, and the many other texts in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, <laughs> chapter 12, that argue that we better look to ourselves, you know, that we could lose our salvation. Aren't they C1s and C2s? Arguably they are. What we need to do in our discussions with them is to show that they're actually C3s. Okay, And we do that by looking at the context. 
That's a, an example of where God, I believe, and if you can help me here, I'd appreciate it. God has almost deliberately thrown us a curveball. He has deliberately tested whether we're going to believe what he says or not. And to whom he said it. To whom he said it. Now, by the way, don't, that doesn't mean... I don't have all of the answers for those warning passages in Hebrews. If you do, then let's, you know, tell us. But I think I have an explanation that I'm satisfied with and that, that passes through this. So, that's where we're at with a C3. I wish this was a bit longer down here. but A C3, therefore, is uh, what we might call yeah, defeasible is that it can be overthrown. Right. You see? So, uh, a, a feasible inference to proposition. Okay. What we've got then, and this is where I'm going to stop for this first part, is that at least having done our exegesis, what we have is that we've got some understanding of how our statement of faith, how our beliefs line up with what the Bible actually says. Let's remember this. Our authority is derived from what the Bible says. And so we're not just measuring the degree of propositional distance here. I believe we're also measuring the degree of our authority to say it. And therefore... I'm comfortable with saying that the pre-tribulational rapture, for example, is a C3. Why? Well, there isn't a verse that directly tells us that the rapture is going to be pre-tribulational. I wish there was, but there isn't. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 12 through the end there, 17, is it? Talks about a rapture. It doesn't say when it's going to be. It uses the term hapazo, okay, to, to snatch away. So we know there's going to be one, but it doesn't say when. Revelation 3.10, I think arguably speaks of, of a rapture. Then there are arguments that uh, would say that the 70th week of Daniel, from Daniel 9, is yet to be culminated. And as the uh, 70 weeks are for Israel, and we know from Romans and other places that God is now dealing with the Gentiles but will deal with Israel when the time of the Gentiles is through that we can put together arguments that lead us to believe that we can put the rapture before the tribulation which has less problems than a post-tribulation rapture for example which is really a yo-yo rapture isn't it we go up and then we come back down again (laughs) But I've got to be open, as the early dispensationalists, as they didn't call themselves that, were, to a brother who says, look, I'm not persuaded by the pre-tribulational position. I think that the the Bible points to a mid-trib or a post-trib or a pre-wrath now, rapture. And then you can sit down and you can do your exegesis, you can look at all of the passages and... These rules of of affinity can help you to see how much human reason is involved in 
each of these formulations. This isn't a replacement for anything. What it is, is a wrench. And it's a wrench to tighten up each of your statements of faith.